This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. With just 15 days to go before the November 3rd election, my next guest delivers a scathing rebuke of President Trump's leadership and overall fitness for command. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling served in the Army for 38 years and rose to become the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Europe, a position once held by Eisenhower. He's joined me today to deliver the President a knockout blow to his fragile ego in a no-holds-barred assessment of the King of Chaos himself. Part of me wants to pay someone to drive to the White House to set up a giant loudspeaker on Pennsylvania Avenue and blare this episode at top volume so the President can hear what his generals truly think of him. Of all the weeks we've spent deconstructing Trump's sociopathy, his lack of moral compass, his racism and callous disregard for human life, today's episode, I believe, is one that would trigger him the most. Part of Trump's self-mythology and autocratic bluster comes from his schoolgirl worship of generals. Trump models himself, in his mind at least, on the swashbuckling World War II heroes Douglas MacArthur and George S. Patton. But these aren't accurate representations based on historical study. Rather, his view of these men is based solely on their portrayal in various Hollywood films. Remember, Trump doesn't read. Not at all. Not even his own books. So he literally gets all his information from cable television and Breitbart or from movies. The man is like everyone's racist uncle that way. After The Godfather, Trump's favorite movie is Patton. And his Twitter feed is littered with lines from the film like, Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. It's an easy way for a man who dodged the Vietnam draft with bone spurs to appropriate the language and bearing of military command. It fills him with a sense of importance. I'm not being facetious here. Trump is literally playing army in his own White House. He has no idea what he's fucking doing. And so he watches the same fucking movie over and over and over again, like it's going to somehow make him General Patton. But the whole thing feels a lot more like Dr. Strangelove, for Donald Trump could wind up killing every last one of us from sheer neglect and stupidity. The generals all despise him. He used up the last of their goodwill at Lafayette Park. Now they're too professional to speak aloud against their commander-in-chief, but men like General Hurtling are retired and carry many of their confidences. Today's army is neither Patton nor MacArthur. Rather, it's an institution which has become by necessity far more progressive and visionary than the government it represents. Trump may prize ideas of toughness, courage, and loyalty, but today's military leadership is much more likely to praise the leader's empathy, vision, and humility. Today's general is more warrior monk than Dirty Dozen, more McKinsey consultant than Rambo. They are men and women of great personal integrity and sacrifice, having devoted their lives to the military. Thus, they take their oath to defend the Republic with incredible purpose and have become distraught and disheartened watching their commander-in-chief trample all over the Constitution, wage war on his own citizenry, and threaten to drag the army into the streets of America. For most top brass, what happened in June in Lafayette Park was enough. Trump had committed great offense and trespass before, but his actions then threatened to turn the American army into an invading force on its own streets. He dragged his Joint Chiefs and assorted cabinet members with him on a walk of shame in front of the entire nation. As many of you saw the result of the photograph of me at Lafayette Square last week, that sparked a national debate about the role of the military in civil society. I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment, created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I have learned from, and I sincerely hope we all can learn from it. We who wear the cloth of our nation come from the people of our nation. 
And we must hold dear the principle of an apolitical military that is so deeply rooted in the very essence of our republic. Hurtling has always been an ever-present thorn in the side of the president, castigating him over the years for his trampling of army protocol and basic decency. Again, General Mark Hurtling saying they brought in Exxon in 2007, 2008. Exxon was there for two weeks, said, look, we don't want to get involved. Sure, it, they don't it doesn't want to get pay. Involved. Because doesn't they don't pay. want to be involved politically. But Plus, now they'll get involved. You say sending troops ring around the oil fields. General Hurtling said, uh, they had 30,000 Americans, 60,000 Iraqis guarding the Kirkuk oil fields during the war. Al-Qaeda was still able to get in. How well, many then I'm a better general about? than the general you're talking about, okay? Then I'm a better general. For Hurtling, the core of a leader comes from character, presence, and intellect. Soldiering is a profession that is both art and science, requiring a deep command of a myriad of complex issues. He finds it laughable, but frightening, that Trump is our commander-in-chief. It's also the reason I brought him on the show today. There's precious little time left before the election, and I want the world to know how much this man is detested by his own military leadership. It would not only crush Trump's fragile ego, but it would also puncture the persistent myth that Trump holds the true loyalty of the military like some two-bit dictator. Let's listen now to that conversation. General, first off, how nervous do you feel that the man in charge of our nuclear codes might be whacked out on dangerous steroids? Well, that's not something that, that really I think a lot about, Michael. I think about a lot more other dangerous things that he could do. Uh, I think there's enough fail-safe measures to prevent him uh, from dialing up the codes. Uh, there, there's some checks and balances on that, certainly. Uh, there's some other people that could that have a little bit more common sense than he does that could prevent him from doing that. I'm actually more concerned about some of the smaller things that he might do. Uh, the way he interacts with other nations or not, uh, the way he gives green lights, green lights behind the scene uh, to people doing things that are either illegal or immoral or unethical. Those are the things that concern me the most. Well, go, go a little deeper into that, if you would. Well, you know, right now, I mean, you could count uh, and I do because I'm a national security kind of guy. You look at all the trouble spots around the world that he is ignoring. Uh, you know, there, when I was commanding in Europe, as an example, we kept the daily eye in Afghanistan, where Armenians and Azerbaijanis right now are in. They've gone from a from a from a, a non-fighting conflict uh, where it was uh, you know a few shots fired across the border every once in a while to no kidding full-scale combat that could boil into something much bigger. It's those kinds of things that I don't think we're watching very well from the national security apparatus uh, that could blossom into bigger wars. I mean, everybody's focused on, you know, North Korea or Iran. That's usually not where the big conflicts happen. We're always surprised by what happens. And that's why the leader of the free world has to keep a, a continual pulse on what's going on around him. And I don't think this president and I don't think his cabinet is doing a very good job on that. They're focused singularly right now on getting him reelected. It's not only dangerous for the people in the United States, but it's it's uh, dysfunctional for people around the world who are used to having America stand up at the forefront and lead. Then at what point do the powers that be hold up their hands and say, you know what, that's it, frick it, it's over, all right, I've had enough, and start to invoke the 25th Amendment? Well, that that's a whole expansive piece of the spectrum. I mean, I think we've seen quite a few people. You had, I think, Miles Taylor on the other day. Uh, there's some other folks who are within the apparatus who are saying, this is absolutely crazy. We've got to speak up. The problem is you don't have the support uh, within the organization, within the cabinet right now for calling out the 25th. Uh, although I think it's certainly an area where we could have a more extensive discussion because he is certifiably a little bit wacky. Uh, he's especially a little bit wacky since he's been on steroids and think he's, thinks he's invincible. That's the most dangerous kind of narcissist when they think they've gotten away with something and continue to press the envelope. We're, I think we're in a very dangerous time. Uh, as, as a guy who's worn the uniform for almost four decades, this is the most dangerous I have ever seen uh, in terms of where we stand as a nation. And I don't say that lightly. You know, General, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I really wanted to start today 
by going back to the summer during the height of the Black Lives Matter protest, when President Trump nearly dragged the American military onto the American streets for the first time, how close do you think he was to using the Insurrection Act? Well, tell me, what do you think that the generals would have done if the army was put into a situation where it was actually occupying its own country? You, you, you know, when you've been in the positions I've been in, Michael, you know a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes that aren't verbalized. And, and I have a great deal of faith in our military establishment and the folks that, that run the Defense Department, although the American people have lost trust uh, to a degree because of some things that have happened, like the Lafayette Square incident and the confusion about, you know, thugs wearing uniform uh, uniforms in Portland or Seattle. They're not part of the military, but everybody assumes they are. So there's that divisiveness that the president has created, which is which is causing some of the dysfunction in our country right now and losing trust in the organization. But going back to your question, uh, I don't think we were close to calling the insurrection. You have to have quite a bit of detailed data. And I really, truly believe that military authorities would have stood up and stood up and said, there's no rationale behind this. It would be an illegal order. And they would have stopped it. I, I got those signals from General Milley. And I, even though he was put in a very difficult situation that entire period, uh, to a degree, he stood stronger. Uh, than a lot of other people have. Well, then as a 40-year career military commander, what did you feel when he used the Joint Chiefs in that politically motivated photo op? Yeah, I, I, I felt disgusted, like uh, many of other colleagues and higher-ranking guys than me, uh, the four-star generals. I was a three-star. Uh, you know, when you see that, when you see General Milley wandering out there, and then later on that night, uh, being put in the middle of something. Truthfully, I, I can understand what happened with Millie that day. He was caught up in the moment. He was kind of yanked back and forth to the White House. Uh, I had a friend once who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs under another president. He said, you know, you, you're called to the White House at inopportune times. You're there uh, more than you want to be three or four times a day. You got to go across the river from the Pentagon to the White House. And sometimes you're caught off board. The fact that Millie was in uh, our combat uniform uh, when the things started evolving and, and we saw him talking with Barr is an extremely bad optic. But as you watch the scenario go down, I think Millie went right up to the edge and then said to himself, oh, shit, I'm about to be part of this politics. And he backed away from it, which I think was a good thing. And then what we saw a couple of days later is he apologized a lot of his peers and cohorts at the National Defense University as a graduation address. That's a that's a big deal. So I again I go back to the point I maintain trust in the military. I think they're going to do things. There's a lot of discussion about what do you do when you get an illegal order inside the military right now. That's being discussed in a lot of professional development seminars. So yeah, people are talking about it, but those who wear the uniform have a lot more faith that bad things aren't going to happen, at least with the military. Now, that doesn't include the Justice Department and uh, other organizations that are under the control of, of people who are abiding by politics versus the Constitution. Because on October 11th, you posted on Twitter about the Taliban endorsing Donald Trump. I can't believe I'm even asking this type of question. So, with all the obvious jokes put aside... Why does it all make a kind of karmic sense that Trump would be the Taliban's preferred candidate? You look back at some of the movements within government that have gone farther and farther away from our constitutional norms. And now we have a president that, again, the Taliban is saying, hey, this guy's this guy for us. And, and he's saying... The forces are going to be out by Christmas, even though everybody we've talked to in our engagements with the ambassador Khalizad, with uh, the, the commander on the scene, General Milley, with the chairman of Joint Chiefs, they're all trying to do what the president is ordering them to do. But then he comes up with a tweet that says, oh, we're going to be out by Christmas. And you just, yeah, I can understand what's going on in the Pentagon. People are just slapping their head and saying, what the hell is going on? Because it signals to your enemy how disruptive the government is, has become, 
and how he's not taken the advice of people who are giving in information. So, of course, our enemy would say, what a good deal. Uh, you know, and by the way, what I'd say is the latest is the Taliban. Model. We can go back and say we also have partners in Europe who are saying, what the hell is the deal with this guy trying to destroy an organization called NATO that has been effective for 70 years and is still strong? We can go to uh, those who uh, are, are, are watching North Korea and saying, you know, this is a, a Korean dictator who is sending him, quote unquote, love letters. The national security uh, apparatus is in disarray because of the, the rantings of someone who doesn't understand how engagements happen and how diplomacy works and how military forces apply as well. Well, you know, today they continue to talk into basically the press making fun of the president for being taken by Kim Jong-un in the fact that and you would know this, of course, better than virtually anybody, they've been at this missile program for a long time. They yeah. managed to sucker this guy, our president, to stand down, to write love letters, and all for what? All, all for what? For the benefit of being permitted to be the first president to give Kim Jong-un a platform? Yeah. I mean, I'm somewhat confused. I thought maybe you could shed some light on that. I, I would only say, hey, I'm not a businessman. I didn't write the book, The Art of the Deal. Neither did I, he, he, by the way. Neither yeah, did he. It was written yeah, by Tony that. Schwartz. <laughs> yeah. So what I would say is I have had to make, or I've had to have to conduct engagements with foreign governments, foreign militaries. And I know you don't always show your hand. And I know also that you should always know what the other person is going to do before you engage. So at the very beginning of the North, North Korea is an example. From the very beginning, when it appeared that there was no preparation or little preparation by him, I mean, his diplomats certainly and the State Department is certainly trying to do some things and make it as, as plausible as possible. But from his perspective, just because of the way he is, we all know how he is right now. He doesn't prepare for things. You're walking right into a trap. The guys he's dealing with, the Putins of the world, the Kim Jong-uns, the Ahmadinejad. Yeah, I mean, you could go down the list and say, these are people who have been doing this for years, who really have a firm grip on what's going on. They're not selling real estate. They understand the second, third, and fourth order effects of some of these engagements. And boy, are they playing him like a sucker. One of the things that uh, we talked about once on CNN was the fact that you know, whenever I would go into a meeting with a foreign dignitary, be it government or military, my intelligence staff would prepare, you know, a, a biography of the individual that I was dealing with, with all the strengths and weaknesses, what I could use to my advantage, how I could make it play, you know, what kind of things were we trying to establish, uh, the conversational tone, what do I compliment them on, what do I stay away from in terms of subjects. What I would tell you is any government leader knows that Trump can be played. He is not as strong as he thinks he is, uh, and, and nowhere close, actually. And every government leader who has experience in diplomacy or world affairs knows they can play him. And that's a sad state of affairs for our government. So as a former commander and a leader of troops, I would love for you to give our listeners a formal assessment of the president's tenure as commander-in-chief. <laughs> what? <laughs> what style of leadership does he exhibit? Yeah, that's easy. And what feedback would you give him to improve himself as a leader, as the commander-in-chief? Well, every type of organization, Michael, I, I'm not going to get too geeky, but I study leadership. And, and there are different types of leadership you can use. An entrepreneur uses one type. A real estate magnet uses another type. Uh, a military commander uses another type. It's called transformational leadership. Trump is using something called transactional leadership. It's a theory. It's a research theory uh, in the business world. And it's very simple to understand. It's I win, you lose. Uh, or I try and get more than you do. Uh, and when you're dealing with a government that you're trying to advance society, and that's what our government is supposed to be all about, if you're using anything other than a transformational theory, where you're trying to expand the society, have uh, live by your values, which are respect for all people, equality for all people. Those are our national values. If you're doing anything other than living by that, you're not going to lead. 
I mean, leadership is pretty simple when you boil it down. It has to do with the leader's character, how they, who they are, how they appear to be to others, what they know, how they build teams, how they communicate, and how they act and make things happen. I personally, and, and I'm going to go back to 2016 because when, as an analyst on CNN, Anderson Cooper asked me, the same question about Mr. Trump. And I'd say from a military perspective, from a government perspective, he gets an F in every single one of those areas. Uh, you know, a lot of people are looking for his tax returns. I would like to see him too. I would more importantly like to see what the hell he holds dear as values. Because if he can't tell me what his values are, and I don't think he can other than making money and winning all the time. Well, somebody then who is so disrespectful to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to the military, to our law enforcement. How is it that there are still individuals that fall within this group that are still supporting this guy? Now, I, I saw this firsthand when I was in Otisville in prison. Many of the correctional officers used to be in the military, the Army, the Navy, Marines. Some guys, you know, did two, three tours in Iraq, and yet they were still supporters of Trump. And I would ask them, explain to me how it is that you could still support this lunatic when he's disrespectful to your commanders, to the people that you looked up to, that you took orders from. And not one of them was able to give me an answer, except one, I should say. I won't mention his name because he probably wants me to. Right. He said, my 401k is up because of the working for the Department of the Bureau of Prisons. Yeah. So his 401k is up. And what I'd say is I'm going to throw that back at you, Michael, because the first time I saw you, I mean, I, I've read your book now. I think it's great. It, it gives a, a great uh, summary of what you've been through and how you've changed. But the first time I saw you on CNN, I said to myself, man, that guy's a prick. Uh, and he's saying things that are just how do you account for someone that believes what he believes? And I think you could say that to just for just about anyone that has seen the action and understand with Mr. Trump and has seen that the words don't match the deeds, that he is lying constantly, that he is saying things all the time that just aren't true. I mean, you're talking specifically about the military. I don't know how many times he said he rebuilt the military. That's a flat out lie. Anybody that knows the military knows that he hasn't rebuilt it either in morale or physical structure. Uh, there are very few new planes, new ships, new tanks. In fact, I'd say there's zero new tanks and only about six new ships, which is less than the previous administration had. His budget, which he keeps touting as $2.5 million, is the budget over five years. And it's, it's about 20% about, uh, less than the first uh, term of Obama. So he doesn't even beat Obama as the, as the administration's best budget. But people believe that stuff. What I would suggest, and, and I won't speak for, you know, the military comes from all walks of society, comes from all parts of our country. There are some, just like fellow Americans, who still believe this guy. Very few of them, very few of them are at the senior ranks who have to execute policy and have to execute operations because they see just how wacky his operations and policies are. When uh, Secretary Mattis was in office, I think people could put up with him because Mattis was a leavening force and he, he allowed some balance to be kept, even though I'm not a, a great big fan of, General, of Secretary Mattis or General Mattis. He at least provided some balance to the military. But right now, I mean, in every department in the U.S. government, there's confusion and chaos. And, and I, I debate anybody in any department that said there wasn't because, because it's, it's, uh, it's all over the place. Yeah, well, that's what Trump does. And that's why I call him the king of chaos. And I kind of felt bad for General Mattis because I know what he was thinking when he accepted the job. Trump gives you a lot of praise, right? Mad Dog Mattis, that's my guy, right? He's rough, he's tough, he's going to help this administration. And you want to believe that the guy who's praising you is going to allow you to do your job. But he's not, unless that your job comports with his irrational thinking 
in an area that he doesn't have an iota of knowledge on. But remember when he said that my gut knows more than my generals. I mean, if I was a general like yourself and I was still in the military, I would turn around and say, well, yeah, you do have a big gut, but it doesn't know what the fuck you're talking about because, <laughs> right? Because you make no sense. And what you're doing is you're putting us against our allies for the benefit of our adversaries. And that in and of itself, as just a basic tenant, is well, I, irrational. It's irrational thinking. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I take a great deal of pride. You probably don't know this, but I take a great deal of pride in, in the fact that I think that I was the first general, he said, that he knew more than me, that he knew more than the generals. He was talking about me when he was talking to Anderson Cooper. Because the day before that, uh, Cooper had me on and he was talking. I spent a year and a half in northern Iraq. And this was about the time that the president uh, or the, 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 uh, the candidate, Trump, was saying that we should just go in, steal all the oil, take all the oil, bring in oil companies. He knew how businesses run. And Cooper asked me one night, he said, is that possible? I said, no, we actually brought in some oil companies and they couldn't do the things they were looking to do because the environment was so rough. There was still a, a massive insurgency going on there. So they all left within a week. And I said, and the entire oil infrastructure, because it was part of my area of operations, is completely destroyed within northern Iraq. It's going to take years to get it built up. I said that to Cooper. The next night was uh, the first interview that Cooper had with uh, Trump. And he said, and, and he said, hey, you said that uh, uh, we should go in and take all the oil. We've got a guy, General Hurtman, who says he was in northern Iraq. He can't do it. And I think that was the first time he ordered the, the, uttered the phrase, I'm smarter than that general. So it was yeah. talking about me. So, so I'm feeling pretty good about that now. Yeah, yeah, except that is really what he's thinking, that he's the smartest yeah. guy that sits down at any table. And he was talking about that same line of bullshit as long as I could possibly remember, way, way um, at the beginning even of the Obama administration, when he would always say, to the victor go the spoils, and that we should just take all the oil, and that would help to reduce our deficit. I mean, yeah, it's such, again, it's such illogical, illogical thinking that um, I don't even know, I don't even know how to describe it. Well, it's not only illogical, it's a war crime. Uh, I mean, we don't do that. You could be prosecuted in front of the Hague for something like that. So other than that, it's, it's not too bad, I guess. So in the past several weeks, there's been one outrage after another as the Trump news cycle went into its hyperspeed mode. And off the various stories from Trump's taxes to his refusal to disavow hate groups to his COVID diagnosis and the spreading of the virus, which one of those for you is the truly great offense? You know, um, the fact that all of that happened from one man over a course of a few weeks to me is astounding. Which yeah. one to you is truly the greatest offense? I, I can't choose one. I'd have to pick three. First of all, his downplaying of the virus. I have good friends and relatives who have suffered from COVID. Uh, and just like many Americans, I realize, and now working at a hospital in my retirement days, I know how much the healthcare providers are doing to stem the flow. So the way he has downplayed and, and caused complete chaos uh, in addressing this disease is probably number one. Number two is his, is, is throwing uh, the, the di divided conversation about our elections and attacking that institution, which is the basis of all democracy, being able to vote for who you want to lead you. That's what we're all about. And him really destroying trust in that organization is number two. And then the third thing, which I think is, is probably we're going to see a lot of danger in this regard, is him completely ignoring not just the Russian interference with our election, which is going to happen again, but the potential for violence by the, uh, the, the militias and the, the radical right wing uh, segment of our society. That's been a danger, by the way, for several years before the Trump administration. It has grown under his example. And I'm concerned that those people that adhere to those kind of beliefs are going to be given a green light uh, and, and unfortunately, conduct uh, missions and, and operations that could cause a great deal of violence in our country. General, I'm glad you bring that up because in the wake of the Governor Whitmer plot, 
to kidnap and assassinate her. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussion about the spread of these groups under Donald Trump and the real danger that they're posing. What have you heard from your national security sources to the scale of the problem that we're now facing with these groups as Americans? Well, Michael, what I'll tell you is even when I left the military, when I retired in 2013, we knew it was increasing in scope within the military. And there's very little you can do about it because you don't know who the key actors are. It's an underground movement. So you really have to have a whole lot of intelligence to figure out who the leaders are and how they are executing within the military. Now, outside the military, as you said before, with your your uh, your friend that was the uh, guard at, at the prison, there are some people that get out of the military because they have the, the knowledge of weaponry and, and how to conduct operations. They will take it to the militia groups. Those things are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. They are underground. And, you know, in most cases, they're harmless because they're just a bunch of knuckleheads that know how to pull a trigger on a weapon. But unfortunately, they are gaining support because no one's doing anything about it. My intelligence colleagues, uh, people in the intelligence community, are telling me it's our number one problem. The data all shows the majority of, of disruption in American society, terrorist activity, is caused by these kind of guys. Uh, FBI Director Ray said it the other day. It just because of all the other noise that's going on, not a whole lot of people are paying attention to it. But this is an area our nation has to address, the radical white wing, right-wing white nationalists and terrorists. To which, of course, the president attacked um, Director Ray uh, and then uh, moved on. But, General, you said that this, in your experience, has been building since 2013. Well, then how much of the blame for their spread can or should be attributed and placed upon Donald Trump? Well, I, I think a significant part because he is not condemning these groups. Uh, we have had people who have condemned these groups in the past, leaders of our nation, both in and out of government, who have said, this is wrong. It's not who we are. His failure to, to verbally and actively condemn by both words and action has allowed uh, some of these groups to come forward. I mean, they're everywhere. They're on the internet. And, and truthfully, as a leader, if you have the kind of resources a president of the United States has, you can attack these groups with different methods, uh, both overt and covert. And we'll just leave that there. My folks in the intelligence community are telling me that is not happening as much as it should. And why do you think that? Why do you think that he's just allowing them? I have my theory, and I'm going to let you go first, but... But I, it's not a priority. And I'm sure part of what you're going to say is that he is a racist. I think that plays a part, or at least a, a, a small part, in his inaction, just like his inaction against President Putin is because of something we can't put our fingers on, uh, although most of us really understand why it is the case. I'd be interested in your view. Yeah, so my, my view is a little different. Yes, I do believe he's a racist. I've said it publicly as well as to the whole world before the House Oversight Committee hearing. But I truly believe that he's not going to permit a peaceful transition of power, that he knows that he's losing, and he sees this militia very much the way Kim Jong-un or Putin or Erdogan or Maduro see the military, that these are his guys. These are my supporters. They are loyal to me. They look like military. They dress like military. They're all carrying... Um, you know, AR-15s, right? They're carrying the MAGA flag as their, as their symbol, right? I think he sees them as his army that are going to come out and, as he said, stand by. So he will call them to action when he loses and to create or to sow enough fear in people that they may end up choosing not to vote for Biden because Trump would only have then four more years to do his crazy, but we can avoid some sort of civil unrest in this country, really basically to stoke fear. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, I think uh, what we'll see is not so much of the action before the elections. I'm very concerned that if Trump loses and Biden wins, that we're going to see a whole lot of militia action. At that point, the other dangers come to bear that if, if he gives them a wink and a nod and, and doesn't allow the uh, uh, the, uh, the attorney general to go after him with law enforcement, 
then there is the potential for the calling forward of the Insurrection Act. And that's when, truthfully, Michael, you're going to see the potential. And I don't want them to instoke fear in, or stoke fear in people, but this is the potential for a civil war. And that's what really concerns me. But, General, remember, he's the one that said stand down and stand by. Right. Not stop, right? Just stand by. You know, General, you responded on Twitter during the debate to the vice president's false assertion that the Trump administration rebuilt the military. And we touched on this a few moments ago. Now, Trump seems to love and to revel in this massive support amongst the troops. But what has happened to his status amongst service members since the story emerged of him calling fallen soldiers losers and suckers? Yeah, there's there's been uh, in the the relatively unscientific polls, but the polls that do exist in the military, done by military times, there has shown a degradation in uh, the support for the president by current military. But that that poll is a little bit dicey, uh, and they admit it. The, the military times folks do admit that. But you know, from from my experience and from the people I talk to. That was a watershed moment. Truthfully, Michael, I don't understand because there have been so many instances before that uh, that could have been cause for the military to say, why are we backing this guy for those in the military? But again, like I said, the military draws from all parts of society. And and for the most part, they draw from the more conservative part of society. So it is a conservative organization in the first place. It just sometimes takes a little bit longer time for some to say, what is this guy doing? But when you look at the facts, and, and, and that's when you have to say the facts and the rational argument, there is no support for the comment by either the president or the vice president that he has rebuilt the military. It's just not there. And uh, I could show you all kinds of facts that say why, why that assertion is just patently untrue. But why would you ever show facts? As you know, with Trump, facts <laughs> don't matter. Right? right Now, what drives me crazy, and is why I brought that point up before regarding some of the correctional officers at Otisville who were former um, servicemen. If you're a career soldier, I mean, Donald Trump's entire way of being has to serve as an affront to these individuals who live their lives with character and intellect. These are two yeah. things that Trump lacks. And yet they still support him. You know, I, I'm fortunate to have, you know, a four decade you know, general that I'm speaking to. I just cannot understand some of the responses that I received from these individuals. And I'm really just trying to understand from somebody that has been a career service, you know, that, that you've put your life on the line, that you've been in the service for, for decades, four decades what are they thinking? I mean, these are people that live their lives with character, with intellect, and yet they're following an absolute lunatic who knows nothing. But what makes him even worse is the fact that he refuses to, not just to be briefed. I mean, that's just like having somebody read a book to you, right? Or to give you the cliff notes. He's not even interested in that. His gut knows more. Expand on that for me, would you? Yeah, I, I, I can't. Uh, because as, as a commander at all ranks, what I'll tell you is the military does intel-based operations. That's a phrase we use, Michael. I mean, we don't just go out and attack that hill without getting some kind of information, like I shared with you before, and when you're doing engagements with other officials. It's the same kind of scenario. If, if you're attempting to conduct an operation, you protect your soldiers. You want to do as much as you can to ensure that they're not placed in harm's way, even though you know there is the potential. And we sign up for it. When we swear the oath to the Constitution, we also know that we may have to die for our country. But you lose faith in your commanders as a soldier if you think your commander is going to put you in harm's way unnecessarily. That's what the president is often doing. Uh, And that's the unfortunate part of this. By not reading the intelligence, by not listening to his advisors, by thinking he knows everything. I mean, again, I'll go back to me. I had 40 years in the military. When I was a three-star general commanding in Europe, if I thought I knew everything about what was going on, 60,000 soldier organization, people would call me crazy. I was constantly trying to reach out, find out more things, get the intelligence, see what was affecting operations, see what was, you're dealing with people. 
and, and people are radically different. So you have to use the measures that you have available to you to give yourself an advantage. It doesn't seem the president is doing this. And in fact, uh, you know, not only is he doing, not doing the things he needs to do to inform himself, we now have his third and fourth string team members who are not doing a very good job and at least trying to feed him the information that he needs or that they're too afraid to tell him things for fear that he's going to blow up or say something bad about them on Twitter, which to me, I mean, that, that just shows cowardice. It, it is antithetical to what a soldier is. Well, let me then take you back to one of the very first anti-military comments that Trump made when he attacked John McCain and said, I don't like people who got captured. I mean, John McCain is a war hero. And, and I believe that Republican, Democrat, Independent, it makes no difference. American, foreigner, I believe everybody believes that, except for one man who happens to be our commander in chief. I still just can't wrap my hands around why anyone in law enforcement, why anyone in the military, why anyone that puts a uniform on to serve can actually do what they're supposed to do, knowing that your commander in chief may be the dumbest human being on the planet that doesn't give two shits about you, your life or anything, that the notion that he's accepting and even talking about, it's, this is crazy, love letters with Kim Jong-un. I mean, I receive a lot of letters. When I was in prison, I received over three, four, five thousand letters from people. I wouldn't, call, I wouldn't call them love letters unless it's being sent to me by someone in my family. Right. I mean, all of a sudden, he's got love letters. Oh, you have to see them. They're beautiful. They're love letters. Wait till, I, you're, sitting, you're saying, what? Right? And now you want me to risk my life? I'm separated from my family, whether it's your mother, your father, your spouse, your children, to, for a mission. And I'm supposed to dedicate my life and put my life on the line for a guy that doesn't believe that John McCain, who was captured, who was tortured for years, when I'm the guy that had my father pay off a chiropractor who was in a strip mall, claiming that I have bone spurs in my feet, but I couldn't tell you which foot that it was in, right? In order to get, what is that, a 4F? Yeah, I have concluded that it is dependent on, you know, how different leaders admire people. I admire people that have a strong sense of value, who are selfless, who respect one another, respect their fellow citizens. It's, it's become obvious to me that, uh, President Trump only admires one kind of person, and that's someone who can get away with things, someone who has a lot of money and who has cheated other people. That's his hero. Uh, John McCain was not that man. John McCain put his life on the line for the country, was fighting for the country in a war that no one else wanted to fight in. And then when offered the opportunity to leave a prisoner of war camp, he said no, because I feel loyalty uh, of value to my fellow prisoners. President Trump, I mean, you're, the name of your book is Disloyal. You know more than anybody else that he doesn't have loyalty to anyone. Uh, he claims he does, but he really just admires people that, number one, are rich, they get away with things, and they're able to work the system. To me, I don't see anybody that I know in that court category that I would consider a hero or someone I admire. I actually admire our founding fathers, the people who have found this country, have developed a system where we can try and build a society where everybody is, is able to pull themselves up, live by the ideas found in the Constitution, by the values that are found in all of our documents. Uh, Mr. Trump doesn't seem to have a great deal of knowledge about any of those things. So he reverts back to just admiring people that cheat, that somehow make a lot of money off of their cheating and that never get caught. It's simple to understand. I hate to say, but he doesn't even admire them. He's just trying to figure out how it could benefit him because Donald Trump admires only one person on this planet, and that's himself. Yeah. 
My favorite line is when he says, you know, um, you know, the art. He was talking about the art of the deal since we had Tony Schwartz on, and he was like, oh, the, you know, the the greatest, the the second greatest book, and of course, then he plays to the crowd because that's really what he is. He's a performer, right? You know what my favorite book is, well, the Bible. That's another thing that he's never opened up. So he's never read the Constitution. He's never read the Bible. He doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself. And as I had started this conversation off with you. I do truly believe that there will not be a peaceful transition of power, and I'm very curious to see how the military ends up um, supporting him or not, right, after uh, the November election when he loses. But I did want to then follow up and ask you, what's the consensus amongst national security leaders about Biden in regard to, you know, Trump's most glaring deficiencies? How has he made the country less safe? And you got about another hour. Uh, what I'd say is there is consensus across the board that we've got to do a lot of repair in our diplomacy, in our information systems, in our economic advancement, and in our military uh, strategies. Those are the four elements of national power. There are many more, but those are the four big ones. And uh, you know, the, the current administration, in many people's view, has has gutted the diplomatic methods of our country. Uh, they have really put our, our instruments of coordination and cooperation with our allies at risk. So I guess the first thing I'd say is that if, if Mr. Biden is elected, he's got a lot of work to do, and it's going to come at him fast and furious to repair the damage, especially uh, attempting to reestablish trust with those who are democratic societies and like-minded. And at the same time, warn our foes to knock off some of the things they've been doing. That's not just Russia and China. We're also including that Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, and I could go on and on. The second thing is there's, there's got to be uh, some strategy built in terms of what are the most important things we have to address. That, I know, is, is on uh, Vice President Biden's mind right now. What are the priorities? Because you won't be able to fix everything at once that President Trump has torn down. You're talking about four years of dysfunction and disaster and chaos, as you say, and all of those things have to be repaired. Uh, and, and all of that is gonna take people with a good ethical background, because truthfully, in many of the cabinet positions, we have unethical people who are in it for themselves versus for the country. That's a hard thing to, to really turn an organization on its nose and, and make some things happen quickly. But when you consider yourself a leader of the free world, which the United States does, you not only have to tackle the day-to-day -day problems, but when you've had as much dysfunction as we've had over the last four years, you're going to have to repair the things that have been broken. That's going to take a lot. And it's going to take Vice President Biden, when he becomes president, if he becomes president, to, do, to, to pick a whole stable of really smart people who can act independently and with an ethical bias and with the values of our nation in our heart. Uh, that's something we haven't had in the last couple of years. Right, you know, but in fact, at this current moment in our time, I have, personally, I have zero faith in literally anything that Trump says. And I see people like Pompeo, and I feel that these people also have absolutely no credibility left whatsoever. So how do you even govern, much less conduct foreign policy, under these type of circumstances? And how hard is it going to be for Biden to undo the grafting damage that's been done by, as you just said, the administrate, the current administration? How? How do we, how do, we do this? Yeah, that's the hard part. And, and, and what I'd say too, Michael, is I've, I maintain contact with a lot of my friends in Europe and in the Middle East, uh, in other governments, and they're telling me they can't wait. Uh, you know, they, they know that what they've seen over the last four years is not who we are as a nation because it's not who we represent. So there are many government officials who understand what we're going through and are looking for the United States to return to the world stage in a credible manner. So I think the, the next president is going to have that on his side, uh, that there are going to be people who are going to be saying, Phew, what a relief that that's over now. Are you guys going to get your act together? And they're going to be looking for certain things to show them that we have. And the way Vice President Biden is going to address that 
is going to be challenging. And here's the other part I'm concerned about. The, the divisiveness that has been created over the last four years is not going to stop after the election. There are still going to be people who are going to revert back to the nitpicking and the challenges and, you know, taking apart everything that the new president does uh, from the right. Uh, and, and, it, and that's going to be damaging, too. But, but I, I actually think, like, as you said earlier on, uh, Vice President Biden has quite a bit of empathy. He has some understanding of what's going to make it work. And he's going to reach out and try and collaborate a lot more than Mr. Trump did. We're presuming that Biden wins. And of course, I believe that we're all hoping that he wins. And I want to take you into a totally different realm. This is like the twilight zone. What if Biden doesn't win? What if Donald Trump manages to do it like what he did in 2016 and he pulls off some crazy win? Or somewhere along the line, this shtick that I know that he's up to, which is challenging the ballots and something happens with the Supreme Court and he ends up staying in power. Tell me where you see our foreign policy go at that point in time and the danger that four more years under this freaking lunatic, I'm sitting and I'm watching as they're talking about Kim Jong-un now has perfected missiles that have multiple warheads on them, which of course creates a completely different problem in order to, you know, to prevent them from hitting a target. Where do you see under four more years of the king of chaos, our foreign policy and the dangers that it poses to this country and the world. I remember there was, there's a saying that, you know, um, I said it once to Trump, a strong America means a strong world and a weak America means a weak world. Absolutely. So with that adage, please give me, give me your response. Well, you're going to see, I think if, President Trump is reelected, you're going to see a continual deterioration of the executive branch of government. He has already shown that over four years, and that's going to continue. The powers that exist in, in the executive branch are going to be depleted. He's going to continue to try and do uh, conduct chaos all over the world, to use your, your word. He is going to want to go against everything that is recommended to him. But I think another critical piece at that point, Michael, would be what happens in the Senate. If the Senate flips, they'll at least be able to put a control on him, which the Republican Senate has not done. Uh, I, I, that's the other part of this whole uh, last four years that has just amazed me, the, the failure of the GOP to hold him to account. Because they know these guys are smarter than they appear to be. Uh, they know what's going on. They know the deterioration of our society. But yet they continue to allow him to do things. And that's troublesome to me as well. So, you know, there's going to be the requirement to put checks and balances back on the presidency, on the executive branch, by the legislative branch, which hasn't existed in the last four years. Uh, so I think that will also be an important part to look at. But still, if, if the president is reelected for four more years, I think we're going to see continued chaos and some breaking of alliances and some further reduction of the status of the United States on the world stage. And we can't afford that right now. We have too many. We have too many crises right now that we can't afford to overlook. And he's doing just that. But General, I'm not really sure that the Senate, even if the Senate flips and becomes Democratic controlled, that they're going to be able to put the controls that you're referring to on President Trump, because so far he actually has not done anything other than. Supreme Court nominations and federal court judges shy of doing it via executive order. And he's going to push his presidential powers as he does. He doesn't believe in a tripartite system. He doesn't believe in the legislature, doesn't believe in the right. judiciary. He believes in only one thing, the executive branch, and not people in the executive branch, he and he alone. So what do you do when you have this self-declared dictator, this autocrat, this American autocrat that thinks that executive order gives him unlimited power. And these aren't my words. These are his words. I mean, these are Donald Trump's words that he has unlimited power. 
How do you stop somebody who believes that they have unlimited power and does everything by executive order, thereby bypassing both houses? I mean, certainly what we may see in terms of criminal activity, and I think uh, you know, the Southern District of New York, the Eastern District of New York is seeing more and more criminal activity that they've investigated and they're getting more and more power to get the kinds of things that they need which would potentially contribute, and I hate to say this, Michael, I'm not a, a politician, but it could certainly contribute to another round of impeachment. And when you have a flip Senate, uh, you have a lot more power to conduct that impeachment uh, with adhering to the facts versus the opinions of senators. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that would probably be the only real solution here. So, General, as we conclude, I wanted to ask you the following. You said in a Twitter feed, people who lack integrity are my papives. Obviously, watching Trump in the White House must send you into some sort of a, of a rage, an um, apoplectic rage. What made you write that tweet? What did he do and what made you write it? I don't remember what he did, truthfully, but pick any day and we could probably figure it out. We could apply something to a lack of integrity. I'm serious. I don't remember what made me write it, but it was something that he said or did. It was an obvious lie that was affecting people. Uh, it may have been COVID. It may have been the economy. It may have been rebuilding the military. Name that tune. There are so many lies coming out on a daily basis that are contrary to the, the health and well-being of our nation. Uh, but as I said before, Michael, you know, I, I sometimes ask people, what are your values? Uh, when I teach physicians a leadership course, I ask the physicians in the course to tell me, who they are, what they believe in, what are their values. Um, the, the Army has seven values. Uh, all soldiers are taught when they join the organization. They are loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. The acronym of those seven letters spell out leadership. I've had as my personal values the values of respect, integrity, personal courage, and selflessness. This president is counter to each one of those things. So when I see someone who lies to me, I tend to, as I said, and I think I said in that tweet, I tend to ignore them or try and bypass them or stay away from them. Uh, that's what has, has caused me the most angst with this president is his lack of integrity. We need a leader. And, and don't get me wrong, all politicians will spin things to their advantage. Sometimes they will have little white lies. But this guy is blatantly lying to the country to its detriment. He's telling people in a crowd last night up the road from me in Stanford, Florida, that COVID, you're going to get over COVID and I'm feeling better than I've ever felt before. It's a lie. It will cause damage. It will cause harm to people. So uh, I guess I was probably thinking something like that, uh, because when you lie to me, uh, as far as our relationship is concerned, it's over. If I don't have trust in you as a leader or as a, a fellow human being, then I just try and stay away from you. Unfortunately, we can't stay away from a guy who is constantly on our TV set. <laughs> well, General, I want to thank you so much for your insight. Um, and thank you for your service to this country. And thank you for standing up and showing leadership and integrity and honor. Um, I can't thank you enough. And want, just, want, just want you to be safe like everybody else. Thank you. And if I can say something in return to you, as I said earlier, the first time I saw you on TV, I didn't care much for you. Uh, but I've since seen an individual who I think has understood the important parts of life, uh, you know, and you've allowed your wife and your children to influence you a little bit more in the approach you take. I, I share this. I, I have a box on my desk. I'm going to show it to you. I, I've shown this a couple of times. I don't know if you can see this. It's a box that says, make it matter on the front of it. And inside of this box are the cards, which, and I'll show one of them to you. I'll just pull one out. It's a card of the 253 soldiers I've lost in combat under my command. Every day I look at one of those individuals who I lost in combat uh, that, that gave themselves to our great country. And I say to myself, how do I make it matter for them? Because they can't anymore. They're the empty chair at someone's dinner table, right? They're with children that are around the world that no longer have a father or a mother because they're pictured in the box. And what I tell you is that's the most important part of our life 
with doing things for other people, trying to make the world better. I think you're trying to do that right now instead of being a servant to Donald Trump as you were in your past life. And I, you better give your your wife and your daughter a great big hug and kiss tonight because they saved you. And I don't I don't mean the lecture, but you're turning out to be a pretty good person in terms of your understanding, maybe at a later age of life, of what a true valued human being is all about. So thank you for what you're doing. Too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my my wife, my daughter, and my son have just been my my rock. And I, I hold myself responsible as Dr. Frankenstein for building this fucking monster. <laughs> I, I, really, I really do. And I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying each and every day to, amend, to make amends you know, with my wife, my daughter, and my son, and really with the country. Because what I thought he was going to do, the same way he fooled more than half this country to become the president— I was much closer, and I was really in the cult, and I was blinded by the magnetism and the, and the celebrity power that he brought. And it really took going to prison. It really took going through this process, which that's, that'll be my next book, talking about the Department of Injustice uh, and how it works. Um, but for me, you know, making amends to the country for what I created for this this pig that's sitting in you know in the the Oval Office, our most sacred room in this country. Um, I haven't done enough yet, and I thank you for that, General. And I give you my word, I'm not stopping, and and I won't stop. You got it. Thanks, Mike. It's been a, it's been a pleasure being with you this morning. Pleasure is mine. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you. And now for today's tweets. And the first of the tweets comes from Ian Basin at Ian Basin. And he writes, The At Michael Cohen 212 book really is staggering. And the stories in it should easily be verifiable by multiple identified eyewitnesses. Almost any chapter would ruin any other political career. And my guess is 0.000001% if the electorate knew any of it, like the Doral Paint story. Well, Ian, you're right. And it's absolutely incredible that Trump has set such a low bar for the office of president and that his followers are so entrenched into the cult, as I once was, to be blind to his behavior. Trump has been profiting off the presidency since day number one. Last week, the New York Times story revealed how Trump lined his pocket with cash by steering those seeking presidential favors to his various properties. Not only is this against the law, it's fucking sickening. Trump and his family are nothing more than a bunch of corrupt carpetbaggers. But don't you worry, Ian. Soon, they will know justice. The next tweet comes from Valerie Freeman, and she writes, I'm so proud of you, and your book was great. I hope that life takes you to better places since you've walked away from all that evil. Hashtag POTUS. Well, Valerie... I don't know how to express this other than to say thank you. And yes, walking away from all of that evil was the best thing that ever happened to me. And every day I wake up and I kiss my wife, my daughter, my son, and I'm, I'm anxious to figure out how to make amends to my daughter, to my son, to my wife, and to this country. And I'm going to do everything that I can in order to ensure that Joe Biden wins this upcoming November. And now for today's mea culpa. In my mind's eye, I'm fast forwarding to December and picture a lame duck President Trump quivering alone at night in the White House. He will have lost the election and for all his foe, macho courage, the man will truly be afraid. He has no concept of duty or sacrifice. His courage is store-bought like the uniform he once wore at the New York Military Academy five decades prior. Marching around with a fake rifle and bullying young boys in the shower doesn't make you a leader. It just makes you an asshole. Look, I never served in the military, not even the Boy Scouts, but I have the utmost respect for anyone who puts on the uniform. These are men and women who live their lives on the basis of purpose and principle, something Donald Trump lacks entirely. General Hurtling's scathing assessment of Trump reminds me, though, of my own transformation. 
How was I so completely blind to what was so readily apparent to others? In General Hurtling's assessment of my own growth, I needed to find my own moral center, and in doing so, I was able to see the deficiencies in character of the man I once worshipped. After the shock and trauma of my arrest and imprisonment, I too was left utterly alone. Instead of the White House, though, I had a tiny cell. But from that bottom, I was able to climb out of the mess I had made of my own life and try to live up to a new set of principles. It's the reason why I'm speaking to you today. My fear, though, is that Donald Trump, alone and frightened in the White House, will not have the epiphany of the soul. There will be no come to Jesus. Instead, he will lash out with whatever he has at his disposal. One last temper tantrum to tear apart the nation. Only he will be completely unshackled from the constraints of the presidency. A lame duck Donald Trump will be a dangerous Donald Trump. His need for self-preservation and self-interest will be total and complete. This is when he will do the most damage. He will have replaced the power of the American military and his generals with the pathetic violence of his MAGA army. As we inch closer and closer to the end, I still worry that Trump's constant need to project power will cause him to spark more chaos with the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, or any of a dozen groups sworn to his allegiance on election day or thereafter. But that said, perhaps they too will just walk away as well. Like his hero Patton said, America loves a winner, but will not tolerate a loser. Once he is humiliated on election day, does Donald Trump suddenly lose his potency to his most ardent followers? Will they cast him aside on the trash heap of history and wait for another once-in-a-generation tyrant to take his place? I think not. For better or worse, he will be their general to the very end. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustad. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast, but to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd. <laughs>